Welcome to the German Genealogy Girls Podcast. I am your host, Ursula Krause from Berlin, Germany. Join me as I dive into German genealogy. You will receive first-hand information on the best resources and techniques, German history, and all you need to know when it comes to German research. And now, let's get started. Welcome to the German Genealogy Girls podcast. It's been a while. There was a lot of other things I had to take care of. But now, at, le at last, I'm back. And together with my guest, I will be able to give you a lot of information. So I think um, it might have been worth the wait. This episode, I have a wonderful guest. It's Teresa Steinkamp-McMillan. She's a certified genealogist and a professional genealogist. Some of you might have had the opportunity to listen to one of her presentations at the International German Genealogical Conference that took place in Minneapolis this summer. Um, some might have had the chance to listen to her lectures um, that she gives uh, in other, at other conferences and meetings. We're going to be talking about two things. First thing is just to look back to the conference. And uh, the second thing we want to talk about is uh, name changes in Northwest Germany. And that's a bit tricky. And there's a lot of things you need to know if you have ancestors there and start research. Or maybe you have started already. And uh, you just ran into a brick wall and don't really know what to do. And I'm sure that after you listen to this episode, you will be able to continue and make many wonderful findings. So uh, let's just get started. Hello, Teresa. Hello. Hello. How, are, How you? are you? I'm good. And I'm so happy to have you here on my show today. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Okay. So for those of you who don't know Teresa Steinkamp-McMillan, could you just introduce yourself? Yes, I would love to. I'm a board-certified genealogist, and I specialize in German research and also in uh, Chicago-area research, or the Midwest of the United States. And uh, I've written a book, Guide to Hanover Military Records, 1514 to 1866. And uh, I do speaking at uh, local and regional and national conferences. And uh, you can reach my, find my list of topics and, and talks at www.lindstreet.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. And I also have a blog at lindstreet.blog. So um, I'm trying to think what else I can say. Oh, I've, I've attended uh, several years of the Institute of Genealogy and Historical Research. I've taken some courses at the Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy. And um, I think that's about it. Well, well I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. <laughs> There is a... <laughs> Ah, uh, thank you so much for that introduction. And now let's just go over to the incredible things you want to uh, talk about, uh, about the surname change in Northwest Germany. You are the expert on this kind of tricky research. And uh, I can tell you that um, even Germans think that this is tricky research. So it might actually be possible that you lose the person you're researching. Um, you simply can't find him anymore. And um, 
but he's still there. It's only that he changed his name. And uh, usually we know that women change their name when they get married, but actually men can change their name as well. So that's when it gets complicated, especially if you don't know about that. So you will enlighten us. And I think we will all learn. And I'm not a specialist on that either. So I actually ask you in for me so I can learn a bit more about that. Okay, but let's just start talking about the conference. So we met at the conference for the very first time. So that was very enjoyable. Right, right. We'd seen each other a lot on Facebook and then never actually met in person. So it was really nice to be able to actually put a name to a face. Well, I guess I knew your face already, (laughs) but it was nice to meet you in person. Yeah, yeah. And um, I met a lot of my listeners, actually. And that was really cool because, you know, you, you never really know them. So that was really nice. And they told me how much they enjoy my podcast. So that was real big fun, very motivating. Oh, yeah. It was a great conference, wasn't it? It really was. I mean, that opening session, when that ended, it was just the just this great vibe in the room. It was so exciting. And it was just different from other genealogy conferences. It just seemed like everybody was just so excited, even more excited than normal to be there and, and to have this this historical event happening. Yeah, I've, I've heard from, it was my first American genealogy conference, so I, I can't really compare it, but everybody said it was the best conference they've ever uh, attended. Yeah, there was something magical about it. It was just really, really neat. Yeah, there were loads and loads of yeah, people. Yeah, there were. What, many, right, many more than, than they expected. expected. Yeah, and great presentations. So I really learned a lot. So I I listened, of course, I listened to your presentation on the topic that you want to talk about today, but uh, I also listened to uh, Michael Lacopo and his uh, Swiss Mennonites. That was really interesting because that was something I didn't, never really thought about and never worked with before. So that was really interesting. Yeah, I think it was a great opportunity to get different aspects of German research. Yeah. I, I like that the the presentations. There were so many interesting topics um, that we never, even German researchers, never really got into uh, because we're so focused on a certain area. Exactly, and it's it's so powerful to bring all of these different researchers from both sides of the pond, so to speak, together to just network and get to know each other and realize that we really can help each other. Yeah. So uh, I think the uh, the International German Genealogical uh, Partnership is doing a fantastic job. They really are. I just really enjoyed listening to Kent and Dirk talking about how they met and and Kim and you know how that whole came together. It was just so neat to hear. Yeah, yeah. I had Kim as my guest here as well and and it was so fun to hear the stories she told of how everything came to be. So I'm really happy that these guys um took this this idea up and they made such a fantastic thing out of it. And for those of you who have missed this conference, there will be a second conference and it's in uh Sacramento in 2019. So not next year, mm-hmm. but I hear that there's something going on in Australia in 2018. Yeah, that'll be neat. Yeah, yeah, that would I, I would love to go to Australia to speak there, but I, I think it's a bit far. 
And I don't really think that's, it's, it's just a bit too far from Germany. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right. but Sacramento seems doable. So I'm definitely going to have that in my calendar. Uh, they haven't set a date yet. Uh, but I think I've heard that they're focusing on the fall, but we're going to see. It's, yeah, they said that be, they, yeah, they want be. to avoid the summer because it's so very hot in, this, in Sacramento in the summer. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so let's see. So stay tuned um, and also check my Facebook page. And as soon as I know more, I will definitely post the new date there. So you can block your calendar and book your flight. So it's definitely worth dropping everything and going there. Absolutely. So that would be a good opportunity for us to meet again, Teresa. <laughs> yes. Well, hopefully we'll meet before that, but who knows? <laughs> okay, but let's let's get to the, the part where we're talking about German research. And this is something, as I said in the beginning, that I don't really know too much about because my focus is on different areas in Germany. But every once in a while, I do a little research there, and thankfully, I know about the name change thing, um, so I'm prepared, but I would be in trouble if I wouldn't know about that. So, Teresa, can you enlighten us what what this is, this name change thing? Sure, I would be happy to. So, I found out about this because I have family from this northwest region of Germany, And uh, basically what happens is there are farms of a certain class in, the, in these northwest regions of Germany. And this isn't from everywhere in Germany, but just certain little pockets in the northwest region where the farm carried a surname. And whoever took over management of that farm had to change their name to the surname of the farm. So, for example, if a woman was in line to inherit the farm, maybe she was a daughter, there were no sons, uh, she would have, her husband would have to change his name to her surname. So, if you're researching in that area and you don't know that that could be happening, you can get really lost. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that. So, this, this happened in um, the former kingdom of Hanover, Oldenburg. Westphalia and Lippa. Okay, so it's not not entire northwest Germany or so. So you have to look for a special region if this was the case there. Yeah, and it's hard to say exact to draw on a map exactly where these this custom was taking place. But if you're researching in that general area and you start to see that. Maybe you see uh, in the church records that there's a man listed with two different surnames separated by the word Ganant or alias or something like that. It's a clue that that's happening. Okay, okay. So the church record itself will already give you a hint. It usually does, yes. So uh, what, how, how did this come to be? Do you have an explanation for that? Well, I don't really have an explanation for it per se. It's it's uh, really hard to find documentation because it happened. It started so early. It in some areas they say it started as early as 800 A.D. and then it continued into the 19th century. 
Uh, and of course, it's no longer in use right now, although some families I've heard uh, may still use that just as a customary practice, but it's not something they have to do. But um, but it, the, the custom does vary a lot in the exact practices and how it really uh, took shape in Germany. But the general idea is that there were different farms within uh, the, these regions, and they were classified by different sizes. And so a lot of times, or sometimes in the church records, you'll actually see those classifications as their stand or their occupation showing up. So you may have a farmer who's a, a Fullerba or a Fullmeyer, uh, which means full, uh, it's spelled V-O-L-L auf Deutsch, um, and then the Erba has to do with inheritance or the Meyer has to do with farmer. And so you'll see that those are like a full-size farmer. So these full-size farms were the original uh, farms that, that took shape, you know, when this custom started in the beginning. And then as time w- went on, they started to build, say, smaller farms. They would call those Halbmeyer or half farmers. Uh, so those and those started maybe around 1200 A.D., and these are just rough estimates that would have been different for every region. And then as time went on, we had small, even smaller little uh, farming, farmers or farms uh, called Keter. And you see these words in other regions as well. This word Keter or cottager doesn't just have to do with these specific regions in northwest Germany, but, um, but they were also around in the, these regions. And those were established around 1300 to 1700 AD. And you've got different, uh, but they all had inheritable rights. The, the next generation could inherit these farms from the prior generation. And the thing I want to underscore here is that all of these farmers in these classes were peasants. They were part of the peasantry. They did not actually own the land as we think of land ownership today. It was the local lord or the groomed hare who owned the land and then gave these people the right to manage it and the right to pass that on to their to their descendants. Oh, so that's a big difference. So they de- didn't really own that piece of land. They only kind of owned a right to live there. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. So then, and then they also had the uh, the um, hoyerling class, which are the tenant class, and those were basically farm laborers who had no access to land, and they would help to run these farms. So uh, the um, the other thing that's important to note in these areas is that they used um, impartable inheritance. So that meant that they could not divide these farms. So they had to pass them on intact to one heir. And now the other interesting thing is that in some of these areas, not in all of these areas, we're still talking about in general in the northwest region of Germany, but in these areas, they had some people used ultimogeniture, which meant that the youngest would inherit the farm. And we see that in my own Headinghouse family, uh, where they did have the youngest would be uh, inheriting the farm at some points. But when I went back through the records, it really didn't always happen that way. It went in the earlier 1700s, sometimes it was the oldest inheriting the farm, or sometimes it was a daughter inheriting the farm. So um, I'm not sure why it would have varied exactly. It could be that they were picking 
cherry picking who they thought was the best person to inherit the farm. But um, in my in the example of my family, uh, in in my the case of my great great grandfather, he was in line, he was the youngest, and he should have inherited the farm, except that when he was six, his father passed away. And he was in no, you know, obviously at six years old, you can't take over running of the farm. So his older brother took over running of the farm. And then he ultimately came to the United States. Oh, so so, um, what, what, what happened to those who didn't inherit the farm? Yeah, that's a very good question. So the ones who didn't inherit the farm, uh, they would, you know, as, as soon as a man is having children, he's trying to figure out where am I going to, uh, what, am, how am I going to help these children gain a livelihood in their adult life? And obviously, you know, you've got one who's going to inherit the farm. The other ones, he's going to try to marry off to other uh, farmer's children, maybe try to get them married off to an, somebody who is going to inherit mm-hmm. the farm, mm-hmm. a farm of a similar status. So they really married within their own social status within, you know, so the children would normally, they would try to get them onto a farm of a similar size in their area. So it might be the next town over, it might be in that town. And then the ones who they couldn't marry onto a, a similar farm they would have to to join the hoiling class okay. or the tenant or class, perhaps or perhaps they would move away or you know find another uh, living some mm-hmm. other way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times they would hire their own siblings to work on their farm. That's that's hard. I mean, to work for your older brother as a farm worker. Oh yeah, that's probably not. Or your younger brother. Yeah, even worse. <laughs> oh dear. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so no wonder why they were eager to kind of get themselves a wife who in- inherited a farm. Exactly. And the other thing that's interesting, you'll find in these areas, a lot of times you'll find uh, maybe a woman who's widowed, who, who has acts or who manages one of these farms. She's in her 40s. And you'll see a, a, a young man in his early 20s then marrying her. Okay. And so you see that kind of thing happening because now he's... You know, it it helps her to have a younger man coming in who's got a lot more energy to <laughs> run the farm, uh, and uh, you know, and it it helps him as well because he gets established and is able to uh, make a living. Yeah. What happened if, like, the woman inherits inherits the, inherits the farm? She marries. He takes over his her name and her farm. And then she mm-hmm. dies, mm-hmm. and he remarries. What happens then? Yeah, so that's a good question. So he he will keep the name of the farm because he is the farm manager now. He has bought into that kind of. And so he retains that name. And then if he remarries, his wife then takes his name. So uh, he no longer has the name that he was born with. And sometimes you'll find that in death records where they'll refer back to his old name. Uh, I have a I have a record where there was a man who married onto a farm and uh, the woman herself had married onto the farm previously. And so it explains it all in the death record about these surname changes that were happening. So that means that within two generations, a total different family can take over the farm who is not at all related with the original family, so to say, 
without even noticing um, because they they carry the same name. It's just that you really have to go and look at the church records to find out. Exactly, exactly. And so sometimes you don't even see in the church records what's happening because they don't spell it out, but you have to kind of read between the lines and do what I call holistic research. You have to research the whole family group to see what's going on. Yeah. So, for example, in 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 the case of my early uh, one of the early Hooding House generation, there was a a man who married, and it it looked like in the marriage record it has his original birth name, his maiden name, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a bad word, but uh, for this case, but his original birth name was there, and then her her name was there, her maiden name, and it just looks like a normal marriage. There's no indication there that he's going to change his surname, except that if you were to go start looking for records of of the births of their children, you wouldn't find anything under his name. Mm-hmm. You start finding it under her name, under the the Hooding House mm-hmm. name. So that was, and and there you're you're just trying to pull, you know, knowing that that happened, you would see from the marriage record that it was her maiden name that's now being used for the children's names. Yeah. So if you do research in such a family, you really have to be very thorough and really pick every record there is. Exactly. Oh, that's that's good to know. Um, and you probably also need to have a lot of information about the history of this very town. That helps. Yeah. The uh, history may not spell out what was going on, because I think a lot of times when they're writing these local histories, they assume everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's important to know, and, and you can tell from the certain clues in, in the marriage records usually that are in the in some sort of record. A lot of times, even in the baptisms of the children, they, they may show uh, the two surnames of the man. So when you see that those two surnames, you know that those could be happening. And when you see a couple getting married and then you can't find any of their children and you're researching one of these areas, try looking under the woman's maiden name. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is that if you're now looking for the farm where your ancestors once lived, that you still might find that farm name. Right. Yes. In fact, uh, you you probably will. Okay. So you could, if you're lucky... You will find information on that farm and even find maybe even the house is, is still there. Right, exactly. And and in fact, I just went to Germany last year and we were able to uh, see the Herding House farm in person. And uh, it's been around since the 1400s. At least that's the earliest documentation that they can find of it. It may have been around even before that. But it was really neat to meet the people that are there today and, and running the farm And um, and and to see some of the buildings and that sort of thing. Now, the earliest building on that farm is from the 1700s, but it was just so neat to to finally see that in person. But it is still there and has been in the family, you know, for all these years. Of course, if you're trying to do Y-DNA testing on the earlier <laughs> members of the family, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, for 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 the reasons we just talked about. Exactly, because the man is not necessarily from that. The surname bloodline doesn't follow. Yeah, but I mean that's that's a, a, a awesome story. Just that yeah, that you yeah. that you're able to find even find that house and and you know really go back to your roots. Okay, so 
despite the fact that research is a bit difficult, uh, you still can be very lucky to have family from that area because there's a lot to find. Yes, definitely. Now, besides church records, I found that sometimes you can find court records, and the court records may give ideas clues as to when somebody's moving on to a farm. So the thing I didn't talk about yet was the uh, was the fact that when somebody moved on to the farm to, you know, what the husband or the wife who's going to take over the management of the farm, they would have to pay a, a, a what they called a vine calf. Wine calf in English is how we'd say it, but it was basically a payment that um, they had to buy into the farm, and it was a pretty hefty payment that they would have to uh, bring with them, and and that basically you know set them up for life. So it was kind of like buying into a business, if you want to think of it that way. And then when one of the uh, farm owners died, you know, the man or the wife the farm managers, I should say, uh, when one of them died, they would have to pay a Sturbegeld. Sturbegeld means death money, uh, tr- literally translated. So they had to pay a fee to the local Grundherr who actually owned the farm um, when somebody passed away. And then the new spouse coming in would then pay the Weinkauf, and uh, and so then they would replenish their fund. So that's documented Obviously, it it may be documented. Yeah, sometimes you can find that documentation. So look in those areas. If you're researching in one of those areas, look to see if there are any court records available that may help you. Okay, so the court records, that's where I need to look. That can help enhance what the church records. Obviously, you're going to do thorough research in the church records because there's so much information you can glean from the church records. But also check into the local archives and see what might be available. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, are are there some kind of records, like cadaster records, that I can see, like where exactly the fields were, or that I can find more information about the farm itself? I would certainly look for that type of information. I've tried looking for that information for my own family, but I've not found it. So I would not rule it out, though. Okay. I definitely need to look for everything. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, we talked about um, um, these church records. Are they Catholic or are they evangelical church records? Because in Germany, we have evangelical areas and Catholic areas. And the Catholic areas, often the land also belonged to the bishop. And, uh, of course, the, the uh, church records then were Catholic church records. Right. Well, in this case, uh, they were Catholic records, but... Uh, I'm trying to, you know, the, I would think that they would have been, you know, whichever church was, was they attended in one of these regions, that's where you would find the records. But I'm trying to think back to all the research I've done in, in this particular uh, custom. I think it has been all Catholic records. Yeah, because, because I believe that the main part of this land simply belonged to the bishop. Uh, the Bishop of Münster. But I have actually worked with evangelical records as well from an evangelical. Yeah, but there were areas outside of the Bishopric of Münster that were impacted by this. So I, I wouldn't say that they would be all Catholic. Yeah. 
Do you know that that just thought just crossed my mind? Do you know what happened if like the bishop or whoever really owned this land or the noble family um decided that they wanted to have another tenant? Did they have the right could they just take the land away from them or or when somebody died they just said, "Oh no, we're going to give it to another family?" Well, I don't know that I mean, I I can't say that that never happened, but uh, my understanding is that they had to really mess up the management of the farm to have something like that happen. You know, I feel like this was a, a relatively protected right that they had, at least protected by custom. And I would say that normally that did not happen unless there was some abuse going on or, or neglect of the of the farm. So I think as long as they were doing their job that it would pass, you know, as expected to the heirs. Now, sometimes things happened where there was no heir. Let's say a couple didn't have children. Okay, now they're going to have to figure out who it's going to go to. So it might have been going to, you know, a distant cousin, or maybe in that case, you know, that's where the groomed hair, the local lord, would make that decision of, um, you know, maybe an unexpected transfer of of management. Mm -hmm. But um, I once remember, and I know, I know that this is, this is very often the case all over Germany, that sometimes they remarry when the wife dies and they remarry rather quickly. And sometimes they marry the sister. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm under the impression mm -hmm. that very often the sisters simply stay there. At this um, at this farm because they don't really have any any other place to go if they're not married. That's interesting. I mean, that could very well be the case that they would be living with them. It's kind of hard to tell, but um, sometimes in the in the church records there will be a um, a number of the house noted in the records, and so a lot of times that's a way to tell where who's living where. Mm -hmm. But if that sister is not getting married or anything, she has no reason to be to be appearing in the records. So, mm -hmm. so. yeah, yeah. If she doesn't get an illegitimate, have an illegitimate child, that is right. Exactly. And then if she does, obviously she will be. Okay, I'm. I'm looking back. There was another family that I was researching in the Lippa area, and they were Lutheran. So. You will find this in Lutheran regions as well. Okay, okay. So that's good to know. Um, are the Catholic records of that area, are they in Latin? They are in Latin in the 1700s and before. In the 1800s, I find them in German. Okay, okay. So that's good to know. That makes research a lot, er lot easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Latin, but I'm finding, at least in this town, the Latin records are, are very, um, they're not detailed. So there's very few words <laughs> to figure out. So it's kind of easier to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the, the earlier we, we come with the church records, the less information they really hold. Mm -hmm. Yes, in general, that's true. There was one more thing I just wanted to talk about with these farms, uh, it, uh, there's a concept called the Leibzucht, and that's a portion of the farm where the retired farmer lived. 
So when he was ready to transfer the farm to the to the younger generation, he and his wife, if she was the only one living, would move to the Leipzig. So that could have been a different building on the property, or it could have been a section of the house that was reserved for the for the older couple. So a lot of times in the records, you may find that a person was listed as a Leibzuger. And then you would know that, oh, they're, they're retired or they're living in this retirement region of these farms. Some of these regions, they had ages set where the, the heir was guaranteed to take over by a certain age. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So especially uh, when there were remarriages, let's say the, so a child was born to a couple Maybe mom dies, dad remarries. Now it's still the the child from the first marriage that's going to inherit. Mm-hmm. But what they do is they create what they call a Malyara contract, which which in Alf Deutsch is literally translate to multi year contract. And what that then that would be set to uh, protect the heir, and it would set the age at of succession for the heir. Ah. So then, you know, regardless of whether the parents were alive or not, he would take over at that point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He or she, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's good to know. Um, because um, I think that the, the marriage age probably also depends on if they can make a living or not. Exactly. Right. You're not going to marry until you can support a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's that's an interesting piece of information. So I've I've learned so much from you already um in these last minutes. So it was really, really great. Um is there anything else that you would like to add or or little hint, you know, little tip that you can give to my listeners? Well, I would say to research uh the family in their entirety when you're using the church records and look for these little clues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing that I do want to say is about the, uh, the names that they use, the, the occupation names that they use to designate the farm class can vary greatly from one region to another. Mm-hmm. For example, in the area where I was doing research on my Hodinghouse family, um, they use the word Bardenhauer mm-hmm. as to, indicate a quarter size farm. Yeah. And I haven't seen that word used anywhere else. But I think all every region has their own um way of, of um naming farm farm names or and, and occupations. True. Yeah. But that was that was one that was very different and it indicates the size of the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you find out all these things? Like if you have an occupation and you've never heard that before, where where who can you where can you look that up or or is it some kind of source where you can learn all these things? Well, it's there's no one source. Uh it's it's a combination of different sources. I always use um Ernie Thode's German English Genealogical Dictionary. Yeah, that's a great book. I guess we all have it. It's a great tool to have by your side anytime you're working with church records because it has 
all of the old, um, a lot of the old occupations and that sort of thing in there. Now, if you don't find it there, uh, there you can always go to, um, I know CompGen has their Lexica online with different, um, different occupations in there. You can always check there. The way I found this Bardenhauer one was by looking into the, I was reading the local history, I believe it was, for the town. So usually the German towns have their own website, and often there's a history section. And I think it was in that history section that I found this word. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way of finding information. I, I really did find a lot of information there in that um, source as well. Um, but there are also local genealogical societies, so you can find them also if you go to the International Germanic Genealogy Partnership, and they have a list of all the genealogical societies there. So you can also get in touch with them and ask if they can give you sources mm -hmm. or maybe tell mm -hmm. you exactly the occupation. So um, every once in a while, uh, you do need help from Germany, so to say. Absolutely. Yeah. So use, use all resources available to you. I once had a client that's like years and years ago. And, um, he came from a town very close to the Dutch border and he already had the town and everything. So I just called the local historical society. And of course I talked to a cousin <laughs> and, um, there were more cousins and oh, probably half of this town was his cousins. And, uh, uh, and, uh, sometime later he just, uh, went there and there were, I think, 200 cousins that he met. <laughs> So we met the entire, wow. and, and all of this wow. was, was just a phone call. You know, all the research took me like half an hour and then I was done. And he had his entire family and they had information on the farm and, and whatever question he had, um, they had that information. Oh yeah, that's neat. It was amazing. And of course it does not work for every city or for every family because this historical society was extremely active. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so uh, that was, I mean, he, he was lucky. You need this kind of piece of luck for this kind of research as well. Exactly. Yeah, but it does show that it's worth, uh, worth getting in touch with Germany um, and, and seeing if, if you can find information as well. And like in your example that you can even find relatives still living on that very farm. Which is amazing. Yeah, we actually have uh, a family reunions now between the two sides of, of the ocean. So every other year we have a reunion. And so one year it'll be in the United States and the next year it'll be in uh, Germany. Yeah, this is so awesome. This is really cool. Do you, do you, do you know of more family members immigrated? From that farm? Mm -hmm. You mean? Yeah. Uh. No, that was just that one. Uh, it was a father and a son. So it was the man that was going to be in line. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. There was a brother that went with them. So they came together. Okay. So it was the two. I forget how many children they had. They had maybe eight children in that generation. And then the two youngest emigrated together. Yeah, yeah. I once found, uh, when I was doing research in the area of around Münster, um, I found the will 
at the State Archive in in of North Rhine-Westphalia in Münster. So that was cool. So he had the son had immigrated, and the the parents had left a will uh, where he inherited something. Um, yeah, that obviously wasn't wasn't a piece of the farm. He was the youngest, so you can re- you can really find a lot of interesting documents. And it was also they were also looking for him when they died, so they put an ad in the newspaper. So all of that was there. There was a collection of that at the um, Landesarchiv Münster. So did they know it? Did they state in the will where he went in the United States? Uh I don't remember. No, I don't think so. No, I, I think that, that they only stated uh, where he left, from, from where, that he left mm-hmm, from Bremen. Okay. But, uh, but I know from the family that they were always in touch. So I'm not really sure. Maybe that was some kind of legal thing the court had to do. But the family was, was always um, in, in touch. Yeah. So that, that was interesting. So you, you find the most interesting things if you start looking a bit, digging a bit deeper. But first of all, of course, you need to know uh, what exactly you're looking for. So you have you simply have to start with the church records, right? And then branch out from there. I mean, search the local archives and see what they might have that can help to fill in the gaps. Yeah. So now that we're prepared and we know when all of a sudden the names don't fit. So uh, we're going to be much more successful, I guess. So, Teresa, thank you so much for taking your time and telling us all these interesting things. I, I, I'm sure that most of my listeners will never have heard about that before. Uh, and uh, most Germans actually won't have heard about that before either. So uh, this is really, really great to know. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed talking about this. I love this whole custom It's fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that that makes it even more, makes it so special if you have some something that, that's not so normal, so to say, not what you really expect to find. Yeah, it makes for good, good family stories. Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay, so let me thank you again. It, it's, been, it's been really fun having you here, and I've learned a lot. Um, and, um, well, thank you for having me. So those of you who want to learn more from Teresa, um, I can highly recommend that you go to her website, lindstreet.com, where you will find, you can read her blog and you will find a lot of interesting information. Um, and also if you look under schedule, you will find that, um, Teresa is a very well-known speaker. And you can find all her speaking engagements and maybe you're lucky and live at a place where she will talk. And uh, I can highly recommend listening to one of her presentations. Seems we already came to an end of this fifth episode of the German Genealogy Girls podcast. Take care, every one of you, wherever you are. And uh, thank you for listening. Auf Wiederhören, your German Genealogy Girl. That wraps it up for this episode of the German Genealogy Girls podcast. Thank you for joining me exploring the hidden gems of German genealogy. Remember to visit my website at germangenealogygirl.com and learn even more about German genealogy. Until we meet again and auf Wiederhören! <laughs>